Good morning, Faith Fellowship. How is everyone today? Good. Is it still windy out there? When I first got in, it was blowing everywhere. So if you want to tell me to go fly a kite after this, I might take you up on it. No, anyway, uh, we, this morning we find ourselves in our continuing series of growing with Christ, or growing in Christ, and my topic for today is basically spending time with God. All right. It's quiet time and study. Now, show of hands, how many people would say it's important to spend regular time with God in the way of prayer and studying His Word? Right, everybody's putting their hands up. That was sort of one of those bonus questions to make it really easy right for you. Now, how many people would also put their hand up and say that you personally would like to spend more time with God in quiet time and prayer? See, again, we could all go ahead and say that pretty easily, right? So after all, it's really only natural that we spend quality time with someone that we love, right? I mean, there's this thing at marriage conferences (laughs) when you go to, and it says that you can tell the stage of relationship that the couple is in by the proximity they keep to each other. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, look. See, we're watching right here. <laughs> All right, somebody's already convicted, man. I'm one, month, one minute in this sermon. <laughs> All right. right. And at the marriage conference, right, you can look and you can tell those couples that might be feuding. Right. Why is that? Because they're on opposite ends of the venue. Right. Maybe they're talking with their friends. They seem distracted. Right. But they are as far away from each other as possible. Right. They're only back together when they're forced to be. Then you may look around and you'll see others. And maybe those marriages have had a little bit longer time married. And what you can notice for them is they may be physically different. But all the while, they seem to be aware of where their spouse is, right? Maybe they're shooting some glances over shoulders. They're talking with friends and stuff. They're shooting glances over shoulders at each other, right? Some couples, you all have your own kind of communication languages of winks, ears, nods, whatever, right? To tell each other, hey, are you finished talking with him? Let's go over here, do this, whatever, right? You have those things that you work out together. But in the end they kind of come together and they'll sit next to each other and they'll be together. Then you have this other set and maybe these who have been married a short time. And you can spot them pretty quickly too because they're the one in physical touch contact, right? Maybe they're holding hands. Maybe they've got their arms locked, right? They've got rubbing shoulders, things like that. They're really close to each other. And they sit down, and they're right there together, and you can kind of see, yeah, these are like newlyweds, right? And then you have that one who are just like brand newlyweds, right? Just having, right? Or maybe they're engaged and are about to be married, and you can always spot them because they're in the same seat. <laughs> they occupy the same space, right, at these conferences, and they're just like intertwined all over each other, right? Some of us are like, man, you make us sick. What is all that? No, but the idea there, right, is when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. And the proximity and the measure sort of of how much do you love this person 
can sometimes, not in all cases, right, because there's things that separate us, but can sometimes really be measured in how much of that closeness do you have? How much of the oneness do you share? Right? So for us, we are the bride of Christ. And I feel like as Christians, as Christ's bride, there was a time where I was like that newlywed all over them. Right when I first started, and I read the scriptures just, just voraciously every single minute. I couldn't get too far away. I just had to be right there. Right, and some of you may identify with that. But over time, things kind of change, don't they? Right, we drift away. We try. We might want to spend every minute with him, but there's this falling away that happens. So, if that's true then why are we falling away? Right, is it because we're lazy? Maybe. Right, is it because we don't love God enough? Maybe. Is it because we don't really comprehend the dangers of not spending time with God? Or the true benefits and joy you can get from spending time alone with God? Maybe. But I have my own theory. And I think the reason that most people don't spend more time alone with God, you ready for it? Is because the deck is stacked against you. There's an enemy that would like to keep you apart. There's a world which he is the prince of the power of the air. And everything in this world can start to force you away and will continue to work away. So left to our own desires, if we don't physically, mentally work towards that, you'll drift apart. Right? There's this thing called busyness today. Can anybody identify with that? Right? It comes in the form of infinite number of choices, infinite number of distractions, infinite number of demands for more and more of our time and energies such that we are all stressed out, overworked, over-entertained, and over-occupied. All of that can push God out of our lives and lead to spiritual decline. But we're not going to let that happen. Amen? So this morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And just like Dan said, we're going to pray here that our hearts would be open and that God, through his holy scripture, would speak directly to each one of us today so that we could leave here with greater commitment, greater resolve, and better equipped to spend more quiet time with him in prayer and study. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father... It's oh so easy for the world to just push things out of my life. And I confess to you at times, uh, I'm not even sure that I'm doing all the right things that you want me to do. But Father, today, as we look into your scripture, I come to you as one who wants to spend more time with you. I want to know more about you. I want you more active in my life. I want to rekindle that relationship I had when I first turned my life over to you 
where I want to know more about this and build a relationship with you that'll stay in the honeymoon phase forever. Father, today, would you have your word speak clearly to us? Would you have your Holy Spirit just help us to penetrate everything of our being? And then, Father, would you give us the grace and continual encouragement for the weeks that follow that we would walk in it and live our lives to point back to you? Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we go through here today, I picked Psalm 1 for us to go through. And many people know this psalm, right? It's a very famous psalm, if you will. It's the first one. If you opened your Bible and you've resolved to start reading through psalms, at least you got to this one, (laughs) right? So you would see this one, but more so because I think it shows us three big principles. The first thing it does is give us a warning right, of if we don't commit to quiet time and study. The second thing it does is tell us the what, the what we should be doing, the quiet time and study. Right? The third thing it does is talk about the win. What do we get from doing this? So it's a great great place to start. Let me read this out for us. The way of the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So let's pull this apart a little bit. Blessed is the man who, like many things you read in the Old Testament, there's this continual comparison, right, of blessings and curses. Right? If you do this, if you are living and walking in these ways, if you keep the Lord's commandments as he set forth for you, right? if you live according to his will and his way, blessings can be expected. If you set yourself up against that, if you do other things, if you live the other way, curses can be expected as well. This one starts out in the positive. Blessings. Right? It doesn't mention curses through here, which is great for us. <laughs> so first it says, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, very easily on the surface, we can look at that and go, okay, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, I don't have any wicked counselors that I know of, right? Unless maybe you're from Boston and then you would say wicked like some other different thing, right? I got this wicked counselor I got to introduce you to, <laughs> right? His name is Jesus. <laughs> maybe it's a little different way, but... <laughs> Right? But for most, we can kind of get wicked. We don't want to have those type of counselors. And we would say, right, looking at that, yeah, on that gradient scale, I don't have any wickets. But I'm not convinced that that's exactly how this is meant. It's not meant to be the extreme all the way over here, although we think that way, right? I don't have any wicked witches of the West counseling me. I'm not doing anything there. The wicked really refers to the non-Christians. The wicked here in counsel of the wicked refers to those who would live their life within a secular worldview. 
ooh, wait a second here. Let me think about that. Right? Because all of us can't help but hear the voices screaming at us from a secular worldview. We're surrounded by it. Right? And we're surrounded by extremely intelligent individuals who can make extremely intelligent and compelling arguments for things to really goof us up <laughs> quite easily. And they're there. And these people and their accomplishment, we can say are admirable, but they are not on the same path as Christians. Right? So their counsel would not be one that we would want to take. In addition, what this shows us is if we do not purpose ourselves to another counselor, this is the default. The world will counsel you. Right? It will counsel you from the seat of government. It will counsel you from the position of your boss. It will counsel you from an unbelieving spouse. Right? It will counsel you from people you call friends, your acquaintances. It will counsel you at your high school reunion. Right? There's no deficit in the wicked counselors that we would hear screaming at us each and every day. But what about the second part of this verse? This stands in the way of sinners. One of the things that I had a professor in seminary say that I loved and stayed with me, I've mentioned it from the stage before for you, right? but the Hebrew language can really be likened to that of the American Indian. Just like the American Indian would look at someone and name them Dances with Wolves. Right? It's a picture language. So when they say stands in the way of sinners, think about what you picture. You picture someone standing. They're standing guard. They're standing in the way. They're blocking the way. It becomes this picture of a sinner who is set in their ways or guarding their own ways. And don't we see that? Right? Don't we see a huge defensiveness from people who may know that what they're doing is not the best thing, but it's the best thing for me? All right? So we can see here that these blessings are that we not stand or become entrenched in our own ways, our own secular ways. And again, I tell you, that's the default. If you're not working off and working towards something different, you're falling into that council and you become standing in the way of sin. You become confident in your way versus the way that God wants you to live your life. And that really leads into that third part. It says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what's the picture there again? Someone sitting down, resting in, reclining in. Right? Sitting behind their big desk at the office or sitting in that lazy boy chair. Right? They're sitting in the seat of scoffers. What's scoffers? That's sort of an old world word for us, right? Someone who makes fun at, makes light of, belittles. Right? Has any of us in here ever heard someone say that to believe in Christianity is Neanderthal? Right? Very popular in the world today. If you have a faith, right, in 2,000-year-old Bible that somehow you are intellectually challenged, that's a scoffer. They'll tell you that right off the bat. 
doesn't apply to me. Right? That book was written for people who need some kind of salve on their life, S-A-L-V-E, right? They just need some religion to cure what ails them. You hear all of this, right? And they are so confident. They're reclining in their seats when they scoff against the word. All of this we deal with every day. All of this encroaches upon our life. But let's move on to the what. So what are we supposed to do in the midst of this? Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates day and night. Now much has been made about that. It was great. I was talking to Dan a little bit this morning. right? And last week with Ron talking about the comfort at midnight. right? And then midnight, Ron said he was using as a metaphor for those dark times. You could do the same with this, right? You could look at this and say, you know, he meditates on day and night. He meditates in the good times and the bad times, right? I'll confess to you that there are a number of times over my Christian walk that I only picked that Bible up or it seemed like I only picked it up when I needed something. And I'm not telling you that's wrong. I'm telling you that's a good thing to do. Do it. But what I am telling you and what the Word is telling you is that it's for good times and bad. So in the times that you are celebrating, in the times that life is good, right? that's when you should be meditating on that. That's when you should be looking at it. One of the best ways that that enemy can use to fool us is to make you think something is good, let you experience success. right? You feel fulfilled. You're using your feelings and you feel great. This is a great time. Why? All because you're involved in something that's outside of what God has intended for you. But the devil's pretty good with it. Right? And he'll bring everything to bear to make you feel great about it. So the what is we're supposed to meditate on it during the good times and the bad. Day and night can also speak to just the length of time. What else is there? There's day and there's night. (laughs) Right? So it's this totality that we're talking about. Right? You meditate on it all the time. Now, how do you meditate on it all the time? Does that mean you open the book and you can't do anything else in your life? You're going to be in constant study. You got the root word principles out. You got the Bible dictionary. You're just going through it. Now, I don't think that's what it means. Right? How many of you have maybe attended a small group Right, and talked about and done some Bible study there, or maybe there was something you read in the morning before you started the day, or at the end of your day when you're reading, whatever's your custom, and that scripture just sticks with you. Right, and then the next day, maybe the next couple of days, it rolls around in your head all the time. You meditate on it day and night. Maybe it's because you struggle with it a little bit, right? You're trying to figure it out. Others, maybe you know you're not exactly acting that way. (laughs) You want to change. Some is, well, I'm not sure I really understand what that means or what that means for me now. Right? But all of that is meditating on it day and night. It becomes a part of you. You live your life through and with the scripture. That's what the psalmist is saying. But then it goes on, as I mentioned to the win. But before I do, here's a great quote from Sinclair Ferguson. 
He said, we are made to work at Bible study. The scriptures do not disclose their riches to lazy minds and hearts. That's an interesting one. Right. It's a quote I love and it's a quote I hate because <laughs> I don't want to. Right. Don't tell me I'm lazy, Sinclair. <laughs> right. And I also think that there are a lot of people who can use guilt the wrong way. Right. We know that our God is a God of love, power and sound mind. And when I see things, I see grace as being a motivator. Right. From God, not guilt all the time, although guilt's there to convict us and understand grace. Right. So I like this quote, and I don't like this quote. (laughs) What I believe you take out of this is that it doesn't just happen. Okay, Think about it. You come to church once a week. We sit out there, and we take in the gospel. Do we take notes? Do we meditate over it during the week? Right? These are things that would say we're taking it more. Or maybe... We can come to approach it like going to the movies. All right? You sit in the chair. You get comfortable. You're watching this presentation from stage, and it can become entertainment of sorts. Thought and sink in. You're all into it there. As soon as you walk away from it, it was, yeah, that was a good sermon. Just like, yeah, that was a good movie. Maybe you talk about it with your friends a little bit. But does it ever make it inside? Do you ever meditate on it? Do you take something that I've said here, go home with it, look it up for yourself? Right? Was Bill right? Was he wrong? Let me, let me meditate over that. Right? Was that meant for me? Was that not meant for me? And then prayerfully be before God. I think that's what Sinclair is really trying to get to here, is that it doesn't just happen. You have to be purposeful. But then there's the wind, and the wind says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in there, right? That joy that comes. And I'm here to tell you, there's joy there. It may seem like a task when you first put your mind to do it, right? When you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning for the first time that you've purposed that that's going to be your time, you might not be real joyful even after the second cup of coffee. <laughs> right? But I can personally tell you that every minute that I've spent in Scripture, no matter how I felt before it, I always get something from it that brings me joy. Always. And there's been a number of occasions where, man, I don't feel like going to community group tonight. I'm wiped out for work. All right? But when I go... And we get in his word and we spend that time together in fellowship and we come through. I come back afterwards feeling what? Delight. Joy. Right? Through all of that. So keep that in mind. We can all use more joy. But that second part, the real wind part, says he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What is this tree? It's a metaphor for your life, right? All the branches are the decision paths that are out there. Anybody ever heard of a decision tree, (laughs) right? This tree is what you were designed to be, God's purpose for you, who you are, right? That's the tree. And it says you'll be like planted by the streams of water, continually fed, continually refreshed, right? Strengthened. 
The biggest, tallest trees have the deepest, strongest roots. It's a fact. And then what's this yields its fruit in season? And its leaf does not wither. Fruit. Our fruit is our ministry as Christians for Christ. It's what we bear. Right? We bear fruit. If you want to bear good fruit, if a tree is planted by a sewage line, it might get fed, but I doubt that fruit's going to be good. At least I'm not brave enough to try it. Right? So I want it by that stream of running clear water that's in there. And its leaf does not wither. I love the picture. We were talking about picture languages. We all know this picture very well. All you have to do is look around, right? Cicada year, right? So thankful, Lord, that we're through the cicada year. Some people love them. I hate them, right? Especially because during the peak times, every hour or so, our whole family experience was interrupted by screams from my wife because one of them was in her hair or on a screen or got in the house or was at her flowers, right? So there was no peace during Cicada Peak. But one of the things we do when we look around here is you can see the damage left by those cicadas everywhere, right? They start off in some cases just little holes in the leaves, right? Other cases, the leaves are completely gone, eaten up. Other cases, there's been so many leaves eaten on that tree that a half a tree is brown, right, and dead and dying. Leaves here represent your spiritual health, the health of the tree. A tree with healthy leaves is a tree that can gather, right, to produce fruit, can use all the energy of the sun for its purpose, that's what that represents. And we as Christians can be very similar, that if we're not continually refreshed, we get those holes in our leaves. Our leaves turn brown. Pretty soon half the tree turns brown, and it can be seen by others right in our life. Why? Because you're not fed. You're not fed by the stream. So all of us would look at that right off the bat and understand it. Reverend Kevin DeYoung says it this way. He says, we are not, first of all, a people on a mission. We are, first of all, a people on their knees and in the word. Can we agree with this? Can we take that ourselves and really put that in our heart? Why? I've seen too many people go from committing their life to Christ directly into throwing all of their energy and busyness into a ministry. And they don't have any basis. And the ministry just depletes them. Wipes them out, right? They don't, they're not fed. They don't have that continual stream of water. They don't have those habits, right? Now, I'm not telling you not to get in ministry and, oh, I can't get in ministry yet. I'm not being fed enough. I'm not telling you that at all. But I'm telling you, first and foremost, we have to be a people on our knees and in the word before we're the hands and feet of Christ. Got a quick video here that we want them to play. Hopefully everything will work well. They practice very hard to deck this up. Same from Kevin as well, and he talks about this issue of busyness. People talk about busyness a lot as kind of a nuisance, but they're, they're actually very serious dangers. And maybe the world will quickly talk about some of the physical manifestations and stress and anxiety are gonna gain weight or it's not a very healthy lifestyle, but 
Even more significant, I think, are the emotional and spiritual dangers that come with busyness. Uh, there's a danger that we're robbed of our joy, that we, we go through life as a perpetual sort of crank. Uh, I know when I get busy is when I'm the least Christ-like to my wife and to my kids. There's just this constant noise and pressure. And God made us and wired us for, for a rhythm, for rest and routine and work and then retreat. And when we violate that rhythm, it robs us of joy and it, it robs other people of joy. So, so that's a risk. I also think there's, there's certainly a risk to our heart. Uh, you know, what, what it says about our heart, the, the pride that's there, how it fuels uh, the love of man or the, the fear of man. And there's a real rot that can set in in our soul. And you think of Jesus' parable about the sowers and the soils and the, you know, the progression that, you know, it gets thrown on the ground and it gets eaten up right away and then it springs up. And, and, and the one that, that, that starts to make it, starts to show life, but then gets choked out by thorns. And Jesus says, one of those thorns is, is just the worries of life. I mean, probably busyness has killed more Christians than, than bullets. Busyness that chokes out the Word of God. It's, it's every time that we come home and it's the, the preparations for a meal or it's Sunday afternoon football or it's homework for Monday that robs the seed of the Word of God that had been planted. It's all of that pressure and busyness that really threatens our spiritual life and even masks the fact that we have a soul. I mean, not only does it, does it do damage, but some of us live at such a hectic pace with so little self-reflection or space that we forget that we're even spiritual creatures. Thanks, Elena. Perfectly done. I, that was really a little bit of a pitch for Kevin's book, Crazy Busy, and I do recommend it to people. Outstanding theology wonderful, wonderful encouragement. It's written really from a point of humility. Let's see if I can do this and regain this while we talk. Um, so Kevin says, I'm not writing this because I'm an expert at how to handle it. <laughs> I'm writing it to really explore and expound on the topic. Excuse the technical issues here. So where this leads us is if busyness is our main enemy, let me get this back up, of having this quiet time, then how do we beat busyness? You know what would be great is if we had somewhere we could look to Maybe someone who's beat busyness and just like really beat it perfectly all the time and like in beating busyness never sinned at all in doing it. Wouldn't that be great if we had someone like that we could look towards? Yeah, we're laughing. Why? Because we know the answer, right? It's the main answer in church all the time. Jesus, right? <laughs> so we, all we have to do is basically look to Jesus for an example of this. So how do we beat busyness? In John 17, 1 to 4, 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, this is a bold claim by Jesus as part of the high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Most people understand and recall the first part of that message Right in his prayer, which is, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to pass me, let it pass. Right? That's the first part. But the second part in the high priestly prayer is, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Let's go. Right? Let's move on with it. Isn't that where we want to get? Right? When I look at that, I'm like, man, I would love to be able to say that at the end of my life. If I could say, Lord, I accomplished everything. Everything that you had for me to do, is there anything better? Well done, good and faithful servant rings so loudly when you put it together with, I did what you had me to do. I did everything. But Jesus, we know, didn't just have it easy. Well, he was back then. He didn't have to deal with Instagram. Right? He wasn't trying to sell a camper and having people ring their phone while they're up here preaching the whole time, right? Trying to sell their camper. Or he didn't have the distractions of having all the children in his ministry that he had to attend to personally every day. Right? He didn't have a demanding boss to go to work for. Don't let yourself <laughs> fall into that trap. Look at this, Mark 1, 32-34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. This is Galilee. The whole city of Galilee lined up at the door for Jesus to minister to. I'd say that's busy. It says, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus was extremely busy. So how did Jesus beat busyness? Let me show you some quick things as we wrap up here. First, Jesus escaped the noise. Escaped the noise. Mark 1, 35 to 38. So a few verses after the one I just read to you with the whole city lining up outside of his house and rising very early in the morning. Wow, how early could you rise after ministering to the whole city? I would bet you got, what, maybe an hour, hour and a half of sleep at best. Right? It says, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I love this. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Jesus got up. He didn't need his friend's permission to go do it. And he just went out and did it. Right? It was his first thing, his priority. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Oh, wait a minute, don't let this get lost on you. So there's a whole line of people outside his house. He worked as much as he could work that night. He went out and prayed to the father and the father said, 
What? Stay there and make sure that every need is met in your hometown. No, he says, get on, get a move on it. You're going to move here. How much of us would be trapped? I probably would be. But wait a minute, Lord, you brought all this work to me right here. Here's, this must be a sign from you. This is where I'm, I need to work. I just need to make sure that I take care of everybody right here. Now, Jesus knew and got out there, got quiet to push everything in the world out, got with his father and asked, right, and had it revealed to him what he must do next. How else did Jesus beat busyness while well, we heard escape the noise? Next, he waits for instructions. So John 2, 1 to 4, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, his mother of Jesus came to him and said, they have no wine. And what did Jesus say to her? He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this has been a debated phrase. And you can debate exactly what he meant and was he, he telling his mother he wasn't going to do it, but he did it anyway right there. Through there. So how does that go? Don't let that cloud your mind. This shows you Jesus was in big touch, everyday touch, very intimately aware of everything down to the hour that he was supposed to be doing in his life. Right? And when he says, my hour has not yet come, figuratively what he's saying is, it's not yet the time to reveal me as the Savior. And you want me to do a miracle, which is the way God confirms that I am truly God. And you want me to do that right now. But see, he gets it. Jesus was so tight. He knew. There's no doubt. He knows what he's supposed to be done. How many times do we doubt? Right? We're busy. We're right in the middle of it. Did I do enough today? Right? Did I do the right thing for the right person? A lot of that comes because we didn't get there first in understanding and in communion with God. We're just busy. We're just out there getting it. Without question, one of the hardest things for Christians to do today with the Lord is to wait on him for timing, to make certain that things happen in their lives. In our very fast-paced world right, that we live in, Things are all set up for speed and efficiency. Fast food restaurants are a favorite for many people. Right, that can be my big problem, I'll tell you right now. There's a lot of times, right, I'm going to eat. I know what I should be. I should sit down and have something very healthy. But guess what? I got 20 minutes. Give me something fast. All right? Everything's set up for fast and efficiency. Right from the drive-through, we receive our order in a minute, a minute, the DoorDash now, somebody else will bring it to you. Right? Computers are now moving faster than they ever have been. At work, now how many people know what a mainframe is? Let me put it that way first. Good, we got a, a good number of people to understand what a mainframe processing is. It's not the most advanced piece of equipment. It's a huge IBM machine, right? But it's very functional. We use it for transactions and counting transactions and timing transactions. Well, a few years ago, right, we had a, a challenge where we had to upgrade our mainframe. Why? So that it could get faster. In what way? And this is what will amaze you. We were measuring transactions to a millionth of a second. So the logs were keeping track of a million different transactions in one second. That's how fast we're moving. And we had to upgrade to a hundred million 
piece. So we gave extra decibel points because transactions were coming in so fast that they were stepping on each other. That's the world we live in today. Things are rocket fast. We're so used to everything moving at breakneck speed that we then have a very hard time in adjusting to the slower ways that God will work things out in our life. Jesus didn't allow himself to fall prey to that problem. He knew and lived that it was not only important that he did the Father's will, but that he did it in the Father's timing. So he escaped the noise, he waited for instructions, and he cultivated dependence. I talked to you about that a little bit already. Jesus was led up in the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus equates the importance for survival of being in the word, every word that comes from God's mouth, right, in prayer, with food. We just did this in our small group this past week, too. Such it is in his dependence. Do you cultivate dependence? Are you waiting on him? Do you rely on him like food? P.T. Forsyth, who was a Scottish theologian in the 19th century. I don't expect that many of you will know exactly who he is, but he was a wise man who wrote a number of books. He said the worst sin is prayerlessness. And why did he say the worst sin is prayerlessness, or what was his point and why he believed that? He said because if you're not praying, then basically you have a root of self-sufficiency. Right? A root of independence from God. I can do this on my own. You know who else said that? Satan. I heard somebody say it, right? Satan does that exact same thing. He says, I don't need God. I'll run my own life. When we fail to wait prayerfully for God's guidance and strength... What we're saying with our actions, if not our lips, is that we don't need him and that much of our service to him isn't going it alone. So how did Jesus beat busyness, escape the noise, waited for instructions, cultivate dependence, and then he continued the effort. In Luke 22, 39 to 40, he came out, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. As was his custom... This tells you Jesus built a habit of praying first. It became his custom. It became his norm. It became who he was. I remember a number of years ago when I was just getting out of the Navy and was recently saved and I purposed I was going to read the Bible from front to back. Right? One of the things I did to kind of trick myself into doing it and making sure I did it is I was a smoker at the time. And I got one of those little Bibles, those little teeny little Tyndale Bibles or whatever that you can get. Right? I got an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testaments are everywhere. The Old Testaments are so hard to find. But I got both of them. Right? I started with my Old Testament one. And every time I went out to smoke a cigarette at work or any time I sat down for a meal, I would open up and I'd read something. And I didn't say I was going to read a chapter. I just read something. 
right? And I kept doing that, and it was amazing how fast I went through all of that and did that. And it's amazing what I saw and learned. I've since read it many times over and over again, cover to cover. But when it became like food to me, when it became like that cigarette to me that I needed every time I went out, right, and those things, and I made it kind of part of that piece, then it became a habit or a custom for me that I've never grown out of. Okay, how did Jesus beat busyness? He escaped the noise, he waited for instructions, he cultivated dependence, he continued on in the effort, persevered, and this last one is probably the most important, and one that I would say many of us fail at all the time. Jesus knew when to say no. And that is such a miss in today's society, right? We set each other up, and for many of the reasons that Kevin DeYoung mentioned up there, right? I'm not going to go back through it. We set ourselves up for this thing where we have to do more. We have to succeed, right? We have to do all this stuff at work. While everybody else at work uh, is working their hours and leaving, we don't want to be seen as the first one who leaves the office, right? I went back into work recently as we're starting Progressive Thing, and it was so incredible. I've got a bunch of my peers that were all in there during one day for a meeting that we're having. And at the end of the day, it was funny how many of them are looking at each other, right? Who's the first one going to leave? When are they going to leave? It becomes this peer pressure type thing in there. Jesus never had a problem saying no because of everything else that he had already done before there. And one of the great examples of that, right, in John 11, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Ah, excuse me, right? Does not compute. Now, if you heard one of your friends was gravely ill, right, and was about to die, and you love them, right, and they tell you, don't you get up, drop everything you're doing, and run to them? That's what most of us do. That's what we would expect to be done. Jesus had no problem staying two days longer where he was at. Why? Because he knew the mission set before him. He had prayed about it. He was already in communion with God. There was no surprise there. Right? Jesus wasn't surprised by this with Lazarus. And he understood that God had something else in mind to do with Lazarus. Namely, right, to raise Lazarus from the dead, pointing to Christ, being the Messiah, and having that power to raise people from the dead. But he said, no, great for us. So do you have a final, where's Dan? Do you have a final song, Dan, that you want to do? Do Why don't you make your way to stage as I just finish through this real quick. So what do we go over today? Psalm 1, we learned the warning of what to be aware of, the what that we should be doing, meditating day and night, and delighting, having joy from it, and the when, right, being planted by those waters, continually nourished, refreshed, able to fulfill what our life's intents are, right? And then we looked at Jesus and how he beat busyness. He escaped the noise for his personal time. He waited for instructions. He cultivated dependence. He continued the effort, and he had no problem saying no. I don't know what state you walked into here this morning with. Maybe you're so busy and you're looking for a way out, and now this spoke to you. Maybe you lost your first love and you want that honeymoon phase back with God again, right? And this spoke to you. Maybe you don't know God, but you heard through his words today just how much he cares and you want to get married to God again, 
right? Maybe you look at your life and the busyness and the things you've tried to do all by yourself and go, Lord, I can't do this anymore. If that's you, right? God is here for you today. Today's the day it switches around. So bow your head with me no matter what state and I'm gonna pray a prayer for us as we get this final song. Heavenly Father, I look at my life and the way that I'm proceeding and I want to honor you more. I want to spend more time with you. I love you. I want my whole life just to be about you. Father, I know you are the truth, the life, and the way. And I just confess that I have been about my way many times. Father, that ends today. I want to be on the path where I am honoring you with everything that I do in life. That I am spending time with you. That I am never too busy to accomplish that which you have for me. And Father, more so, I want to ask you to come into my life as the Holy Spirit. Change my heart from the way of the world. Change me from a wicked, right, to a son and daughter in Christ. Father, I ask these things not because of anything in my own personal experience or deserving it, but because your son Jesus died on a cross that I might ask that I might have eternal life by believing and trusting in Him and Him alone for my salvation. Father, we ask these things in His precious name.